Welcome to the 334th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk with Esther Lieberman-Cuenca about teaching medieval history in the COVID era. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at its new time of 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please also feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 6, 2021, there are 4,569,193 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are other statistics we might like to know about COVID-19, and I will turn to that in a few minutes when I join my conversation with my guest. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Louisiana police lieutenant and dad of three dies of COVID-19 day before his wedding. Lieutenant Dunn leaves behind three children ages 1, 5, and 13. This appeared in ABC News by Emily Shapiro. Marcus Dunn, a police lieutenant and community mentor in Baker, Louisiana, died of COVID-19 one day before his wedding. Lieutenant Dunn, 36, succumbed to the virus on August 13th, leaving behind three children ages 1, 5, and 13, said Baker Police Chief Carl Dunn, who is also a cousin of Lieutenant Dunn. Lieutenant Dunn and his fiancée were initially set to get married in July of 2020, but postponed the ceremony to August 14, 2021, due to the pandemic, Carl Dunn told ABC News. She's lost without him, Carl Dunn said. Lieutenant Dunn was an Air Force veteran who spent his free time coaching and mentoring local children, the chief said. For Lieutenant Dunn, it was personal. His father was killed when he was a child and all of his positive role models were coaches, so he felt a responsibility to give back, the chief said. He just wanted to always be in these children's lives and be a positive impact, Carl Dunn said. His fiancée, she really understood that that's where his heart was and that's what kept him satisfied, giving back. On July 29th, Lieutenant Dunn told the chief he tested positive for COVID-19. Lieutenant Dunn was not vaccinated, Carl Dunn said, adding that his cousin did not tell him why he chose not to get the shot and that it was not a requirement for the police department. It was disturbing to me that he hadn't gotten it. I didn't know for sure he hadn't gotten it until it was all over with, Carl Dunn said. Lieutenant Dunn's symptoms were coughing, a headache, and trouble breathing at first, but Carl Dunn said he talked to him every day and he always sounded upbeat. Even the day that he went on the ventilator, I talked to him that morning and he told me that he wasn't feeling bad, the chief said. Lieutenant Dunn went on a ventilator on August 10th and never came off it, leaving Carl Dunn in shock. I know he was a fighter and strong-willed, he said. I just keep telling myself he was going to make it. And I also kept assuring the family that I knew he was going to make it. The mayor of Baker, Darnell Waits, said in a statement, My heart is heavy since learning of the passing of Demarcus Dunn. He was a father, husband, soldier, mentor, friend, and veteran, Baker police officer, a man loved by all, Waits said. His life spent dedicated in service to others was a shining example for our community. Added Carl Dunn, we lost a wonderful person and a wonderful community servant. He had a sense of being responsible. He wanted to be the one to make a positive change. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest, Esther Lieberman-Cuenca. Esther Lieberman-Cuenca is an assistant professor of history at the University of Houston, Victoria, in Victoria, Texas. She teaches courses in world, European, American, and medieval history, and has published widely on pedagogy. 
She recently edited a special cluster of essays for the journal Europe Now, which is published by the Council of European Studies at Columbia University. The piece is on, and the special issue is on, teaching medieval history in the COVID era. Esther Lieberman-Cuenca, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start the way I generally do, finding out what the pandemic looks like where you are. So what's the situation there? Okay, so um, there's two different types of situations. There's at the community level here in, in Victoria, and then there's just Texas. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to admit to you, um, I don't always follow the numbers very closely because I find it very traumatic. <laughs> I find it very sad. And um, and I feel like the world is so <laughs> tough around us that I it's not something that I constantly follow. But I do get um, on, on Facebook, at least I subscribe to the local paper, which is a Victoria advocate. And um, every day uh, they post um, like what, what are the new what's the new case numbers and what are like what's the death rate and all that. So I do I do get it in even even though I might a little bit avoid it because it's, it's so sad to me. But uh, right now in Victoria, Texas. Um, just so that I can situate all all the all of your uh, audience members in Victoria, uh, Victoria, Texas is called the crossroads of Texas. We're in South Texas. We are uh, about two hours away from Houston, two hours from San Antonio, two hours from Austin, two hours from Corpus Christi, give or take, um, in either direction. That's why we're called the crossroads. Uh, Victoria is the county seat of Victoria County. It is definitely the biggest city. Um, in the in the region and in the county, but that's it's not saying much. It's about sixty to sixty five thousand people here. Um, the vaccination rate is not wonderful. Um, there is a about a forty seven percent vaccination rate in Victoria, um, in 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 the city of, of of Victoria, Texas, and the cities around us in Victoria County. Uh, which are much less popu uh, uh, populated, uh, also have about that number, although there's two cities or so that are they're up to 52%. So the vaccination rate um, is not great. Um, there's about roughly one death per week. Um, that's what that uh, that's that's been the rolling seven day average and about um, and about 72 cases per week. In Texas, um, Texas has been a real hotspot. And from what I can from what I can tell from the maps, at least that are provided by the New York Times, uh, the hotspot doesn't um, the, the real, real hotspot in Texas doesn't necessarily seem to be South Texas, where I'm, I'm at, but more like in the in the Dallas area. But still, Texas is um, a horrible place for, <laughs> for more, more reasons than one right now. And um, it's pretty bad. It's about 19,000 uh, infections per week um, and about 250 deaths per week. Uh, so it's 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 real bad. We have um we have a governor uh, who is not helping matters, uh, who governs in a way that reminds me a little bit of President Trump from last year, kind of in denial. Like we are not going to uh, we're not going to do anything proactive uh, to protect you. Uh, we're not going to mandate masks. You cannot ask about vaccination requirements. Um, and I'm mentioning the governor because that has that has an effect on my workplace. I work for the state. And so we are, we are tied to what this governor mandates or doesn't mandate. Um, so that has made it more difficult for us to, um, well, we can't enforce masking. We can't, um, we, we, we run a vaccination clinic out of the university and we give incentives for students to get vaccinated. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they need to do it. Um, so I think we have been trying our best to deal with a very bad situation here where people are very careless, where there is minimal masking. Um, but it, it's, it's just about like survival um, every day. And I've, I've, I've found ways, um, I, I have found ways to apply a little bit of social pressure for my students to wear masks when they're in the classroom with me, at, at least um, I've, I think I've kind of figured that out in the last week. Uh, but other than that, um, it's it's been pretty horrible. And because there is there is no real leadership here. Can you say a little bit about the the way that that conversation unfolds in a in a classroom in a state with a low vaccination rate and a governor who has literally banned what most people would consider common sense public health uh, measures to be taken in a crowded space? And there you are in front of the classroom. How does that work? 
Okay, so I'm not sure whether what I have done is going to last for the rest of the semester. We started classes August 23rd. Uh, so really, we've we've been uh, we've really uh, you know th start this week is really our third week of of classes, but this is what I have done. Um, I have um, I have written emails uh, like like email blasts like please do not forget to wear your mask. If you feel like you cannot wear a mask, uh, then this this class is streaming simultaneously. Please take it from your dorm room or from your house. Uh, so that's an uh, that's you know you ha I always say like you have options. Um, the other thing that I do, um, I always remind them that vaccination is free. One of one of the things that I have found um, being in this kind of small city in Texas is that a lot of people don't get vaccinated, not just not necessarily because they are like they're anti -vac vaccine. So I mean, some of them are like that, but some of them just don't know, like they don't like they don't really know what a vaccine is, or they don't know it's free. They don't know that like you can walk into Walgreens and get it. So part of part of that is just making sure that you know th that you don't have to pay for this like you just have to go and it's like really quick um so i i always remind them of that of emails now when we actually get into the class this is what i've been doing i bring a stack of masks with me i bring uh the n95 mask and i bring more of the um you know the blue the the, the blue ones that are a bit more flimsy but mm -hmm. it's something and when a student comes in who's not masked, and I have to say now it's a minority of students because I'm so forceful over email. I always say you're not legally required, but but please, for my safety, I put myself in, you know, I put right, myself in right. email for that. But um, once in a while, you know, I'll, I'll, have a, I'll have a student come in who's not masked. And I don't say, hey, would you like to wear a mask? I give them the option. Would you like the blue mask or would you like the this uh, N95? You don't, <laughs> and you do it in front of the classroom. Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, they're not offended or anything. They're like, oh yeah, I forgot. And you know, they'll grab a right. mask from you or, or they'll think about it like, oh, I think, yeah, I think I want that one. So you, it, it's not like, you know, hey, do you, do you want to do this today? It's like, you're going to do this today, but here you're, <laughs> you can do it in two different ways. And so that's how I have solved the issue of, of masking. And now I have um, 100% masking in my classroom, but that's because I have used, um, this is not the, the right word, but the bully pulpit <laughs> or the gentle pulpit. Like I, I go and like do it in front of the classroom. Sure. Or your mask. So that's how I have solved it. But um, that shouldn't be up to me. There should be a mandate that all students who want to attend class do, do have to wear masks and they don't have to put that burden on me. But I but it is it is on me. And that's what I have figured out. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, and mm -hmm. I mean, you are their teacher. So mm -hmm. I mean, there is that aspect of this I feel has been overlooked. It's like it's, it's not like teachers. I mean, aside from everything else that's going on, teachers have an important duty to students to actually share facts with them. Sometimes mm -hmm. those facts are what's in the textbook and some I'm, I'm in the op-ed box right here, but, um, and sometimes those facts are about how the world works and, and how to keep themselves safe. And university professors also have unique responsibilities, particularly with freshmen, but not only, mm -hmm. um, who may be away from home for the first time, um, living in settings that they hadn't lived in before. Another thing I wanted to note about what you said, and, and we can really picture it the way you described it, where you'd be having the, and, 95 or you'd be having the blue mm -hmm. today is that even in states that have mask mandates, I hear from faculty who are doing having to do something similar because just because the mandate is there doesn't mean students remember. I mean, they forget their yeah. their uh, adapters. They forget their umbrella. We all do. Yeah. And so yeah. to de-escalate that from something where all of a sudden it's like, let's have an ideological confrontation this morning to let's just all, you know, not kill each other. That's, <laughs> it seems like the right way to go to me, Esther. Yeah, they're, listen, um, most of them mean well, and I've, I made it very clear that um, I would not necessarily welcome an unmasked person and that you have an option if you would like to remain unmasked. Um, so that's, that's how I dealt with it. Um, I also, you know, we also have to understand that like students have come here to learn from you. Like they don't need to be em embarrassed by you. Like I put social, but I don't embarrass them. I go, I, I go like, hey, uh, uh, did you forget? Like, here, here's some masks. Here's some options. I make it very casual, so they don't, um, they don't feel bad about it or anything. Um, another thing that I should mention um, is that the student population that I teach um, is 
is a is a working class community. Um, they are mostly uh, students of color. I teach in a what we call an H a federally designated HSI, a Hispanic serving institution. Um, and to qualify for that federal designation, you need to have a population of at least 25% of students need to be um, Hispanic. I think uh, UHV has 43%. Um, we have um, uh, a, a pretty large proportion of our, our student body is also um, African-American. We have a smaller proportion of Asian. So really white students are in a, in a sense, a kind of minority um, at, my, at my institution. My institution also tends to have older students, um, students who have been in the working world or are combining their, um, their work life with going to classes. Um, so they um, are of, their average age is, is higher than, you know, 22. Um, they, it also tends to be predominantly female. It sometimes this depends on the major, what have you, but on uh, overall. So the student, the student, the student body is, um, over tends to be overwhelmingly female, tends to be older and tends to be Hispanic. And that's, and they, and they are most importantly first generation. So they don't necessarily have someone in their family, um, from whom they get advice on how to just succeed in college. Like we are it, we are, we are, we are teaching them that. And I, you know, my parents, my, my parents are South American and we're, we're an immigrant family as well. I'm first, I'm first generation American. Uh, but my mom went to college in Chile. And my dad went to, uh, he came to this country when he was 16 and he went to the University of California, Irvine and get a, got an engineering degree. So I am not first generation college student. And, and so I, even though we never really had long conversations about college, I kind of knew what to expect when I got to college. That is not necessarily the case with these students. They come from a very different background. So they don't know a lot of the, they don't know a lot about like, like classroom etiquette or anything like that. And you just, they're, they're, they're learning. You just got, you just have to be patient. They're not, um, students are never like, they're never want to be malicious or anything like that. And that's just, you just have to come from a place of understanding. Getting a snapshot inside the classroom at the university of mm -hmm. Houston, Victoria from mm -hmm. professor Esther Lieberman Quinca on COVID calls. And Esther, let me, um, ask you a question. I've been asking all my guests lately, if you wouldn't mm -hmm. mind sharing a memory that you have of this COVID time, I'm sure you have more than one, but something that really resonates for you that's sort of particular to this time. So um, I, uh, a lot of my historical work, by the way, just so you, um, everyone knows, I'm going to get this out of the way. I am not a historian of medicine or disease. I'm a medieval historian, yes, but I, I, do, um, I had, prior to COVID, I had very little exposure um, to the history of of medicine and disease and history of science and all of that. And I have given myself over the year a crash course. We'll get to that a little bit more. I'm a legal historian by training. I'm a medieval historian. And um, when I was hired at UHV, I was, uh, my, um, I was hired out of graduate school and I started in August of 2019. And I, I, I had like about a semester of like a normal semester, not really normal because I was still settling into a new institution. I was still getting to know my colleagues. I had about a, a, a one normal-ish semester, and in the and in the spring, COVID hit. So I I have been in Texas um, since August of 2019. In my very first time in Texas because I'm originally from from California, and I've barely had um, I've barely had a time to really like really, really get settled here. Everything has been in this kind of crisis mode. Um, um, and as a historian, you know, as a historian of customary law of, of, of legal memory and all that, I'm very interested in, in, in how, in how we talk about memory and how we store memory and how we, um, in, in how historical sources can be um, evidence of, of, of public memory of, of memory, of private memory. All the, I'm interested in all those issues. So I was reading a lot about memory during the time of COVID and the things that we remember. And, you know, most articles that I am reading are like everything, everything is hard to remember. Everything is very traumatic, but then also everything is hard to remember because everything like blends together. Um, it's very hard to pick out the things that are necessarily meaningful because what is what we do in our daily lives doesn't really just pop out. So I would have to say that what has popped out for me 
as someone who just moved to Texas, who doesn't really know this state at all, was the times that I got to leave Victoria during the pandemic. Because I've, I teach at the University of Houston, Victoria. I've never been to Houston. I've been to the airport, but I've never been to Houston. I've never, wow. because I, I haven't right. had time right. to, to, to I've, I've been in Victoria. So um, when I went to San Antonio, because I, I, I replaced a, uh, the countertop of my kitchen. So um, when I had to go to the slab yard in San Antonio, it was my first time ever in mm-hmm. San Antonio. I went to a slab yard. It wasn't exciting, but that sticks out in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I have an acquaintance in Austin. Um, that was my first time going to Austin. So um, I met up with my acquaintance and um, he's an Austin native. And we, we went around that river. Um, we walked mm-hmm. outside. And then I went home <laughs> that because yeah. all of the times, all the times where I get to go outside of Victoria is, um, is what, is what sticks out. Um, I very briefly went to when, when it looked like we were beating this thing before Delta came on the scene, I went to California and I saw my mother for like the first time in like two years or something like that. And I was, um, and I was so happy and I saw my nephews. So that obviously sticks out in my mind. Um, as a calm, as a calm before the Delta storm. So it's, it's things like that. It's when it interrupts the monotony of your memories, of your experiences, that is what sticks out. But those particular things are not necessarily like very special. It's just like, I go to a slab yard, I walked around a river, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. things like that. Uh, thank you for that. And um, so I'm uh, born and raised in Texas. So <laughs> it, and, and, uh, fifth generation. So it's interesting to hear you describe your sort of first, you know, trips outside of Victoria. Victoria is a place we always stop when we're on our way to the to the coast, mm-hmm. coming from Central Texas. Mm-hmm. And it's not a normal first trip to Austin to like go meet a friend, go for a walk by the river, and leave. Usually, a trip to Austin involves live music and food <laughs> and restaurants and the lively, yeah. you know, and San Antonio the same. So you know what you what you're describing is really. I think iconic of this time. There's also something I just want to point to what you said, the the density of the experience of this time, even though for for many people it's been very mundane mm-hmm. being at home, disrupting the normal patterns, but it's still a dense set of experiences. And the problem of pulling one out is I don't ask this as a trick question, but as a historian, you were on to me immediately because this is for historians, this is part of what we deal with in the past. Mm-hmm. Our historical sources don't say to us, they don't write a letter and say, having now considered the tw- two years of this event, I'm going to tell you what my single strongest memory is. They're mm-hmm. real people like us. And mm-hmm. so they describe the density of their experience. And then we have to try to decide yeah. how to prioritize those. And that's that's um, great historians are experts in the mundane, I think. And so I really like the way you the way you address <laughs> that. And, and you said, and I uh, your proviso that you're not a medieval historian of medicine is well noted. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of, of them on COVID calls. I am also mm-hmm. not, and I'm also not trained in the history of medicine. So, and listeners know that. So I'm learning as much as anybody else. So having said that, let's, mm-hmm. let's find out about your, your research. We'll mm-hmm. talk about the teaching too, in a minute. What's the, before coming into the COVID-19 era, what was most of your research about? Oh God, it's, it's, it's going all sorts of different uh, directions. Um, I, I'm, I'm the, um, I'm the person who looks at the shiny object and I go follow it. That's, that's basically what I'm doing now. At my core, I'm a legal historian. What I, I'm a, I'm a medieval English historian. I, and I specialize in urban history and in town, like town law is my thing. And I'm, I'm currently writing a book. Um, the manuscript is, is under review, but I'm currently writing a book on the development and evolution of town law, um, in medieval English towns. It's a really, really big project. Um, so that will always, I think, be my primary identity. Uh, but, a secondary identity that I have developed is a historian of popular culture. So I I really examine these um, these questions of medievalism, which is the popular representation of the Middle Ages in our modern era, and um, and that can that can come through media such as like film and music. I've I I have. Um, I have a. Uh, I just published an article on the on the medievalisms of of the music in Game of Thrones in the journal Popular Music. Um, I have uh, I have talked about like the deployment of this of this word blood libel in American 
political culture. Um, um, and I used the, the Sarah Palin thing in 2011 as a kind of flashpoint to discuss that. So I talk a lot about like how, uh, the Middle Ages comes up in political discourse, how it comes up in film and music and that kind of thing. So. My, you know, besides my, I, I guess I had a, a a little bit of an interest of like how medieval death and disease comes out in, in popular media. I, I I did before all the COVID thing, I did have a little bit of an interest in that, but my interests were very, very far away from medicine and, and, and disease. I was kind of dealing in, in those kind of worlds, popular culture and law and all of that. Um, and I realized that COVID, that the way that I tend to want to understand myself and I understand the world around me. And I think you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about is I understand it historically. There's that's the reason why I'm a historian. That is how I process information. And COVID was such a, a, a friggin' trauma when it it hit, um, how it completely disrupted my, you know, my, my career here, my, um, my building a community, um, that I would, wasn't able to, to go visit family. Um, the only thing that I, the, the only way that I was able to process it was to offer a class <laughs> on, on the history of, on, and the history of pre-modern disease and, and, um, and, uh, not really medicine, but on, on pre-modern diseases and pandemics, because that's how I felt that I was going to get through it. I was like, you know what? I can sit down and I can learn this stuff. I can, uh, I've never ever planned to offer a class like this, but I need it. And I think the students need it too. And, and I, this is how we're going to process this experience. We're going to process it historically. So you were able to pivot early in the pandemic to offering a, a class on pre-modern pandemics? Um, so we, as, as you know, we, the pandemic hit, in, hit us in March. Um, we all went, um, it hit us right, right before spring break. So we were given um, the spring break to put all our classes online. This is a, a experience that was very common to base maybe a hundred percent of us um, in in U.S. institutions. Uh, so that all happened, and I had a, a very I had a very particular way that I did that. That it was that was just like you know plugging holes in the in the in the leaky in the leaky ship. I did something like very rudimentary on Blackboard. I did I did not do live classes, what have you. But I was thinking that. I have the summer. I am not going anywhere in the summer because I am stuck here. And I am just going to go. I mean, I'm going to work on my other writing projects, but I'm going to go full hog on this pandemics class. Um, I'm and I, I I made I constructed an entire source book for my class. Uh, which I took from because what I was trying to t the, the the class that I developed that I that I ended up teaching that fall fall of 2020. Um, I didn't really see a class like it. It was not just um, disease and pandemics. I also dealt like I did a week on disabilities and and disfigurement. Um, I also wasn't just doing the Middle Ages. Yes, it centers very much on the Middle Ages because we're going to spend a lot of time on the Black Death and and the first outbreak of the second pandemic. But um, I also wanted to go back to the ancient Near East. I want to go to prehistoric times. I wanted to I wanted to examine you know where diseases come from. Um, we went to uh, we, we looked at we looked at uh, 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 sources from ancient Rome as well. So I, I it was and then we also went into the modern period, too, a little bit. So it was a long um, the, the title of the class was a special topics in like medieval pandemics. But in reality, it was a long durée history. And yes, a lot of it spent time in the Middle Ages, but that's not all we did. And so I really couldn't find a comparable like a, a, a complimentary source book for that. So I, I grabbed a bunch of sources from different places that I could find and I, and I cobbled it together in like one big, like 70 page PDF. Um, and that became our textbook for the class. Wow. So um, just want to underline the, what you said a moment ago about uh, making sense of this time by teaching it, mm -hmm. um, which is a unique opportunity uh, for teachers, uh, and it also, I think it's Im important to note that your, I think your perspective here is incredibly valuable because your training is in other aspects mm -hmm. of life in the Middle Ages, mm -hmm. and so you then brought in um, what you needed to know to be able to talk about the Black Death, let's say, for example, mm -hmm. or trace that back to the to the ancient world. Maybe you could just say a little bit more about your preparation there because it's like almost unlimited. I mean. 
seems to me, I mean, it's an almost unlimited number of, of recent volumes. I mean, it's a very lively area of scholarship, which I'm happy to see, and I think it will be even more so. How does one sit down and begin to prepare to teach the Black Death? Um, well, I don't start off the class on Black Death. We go to like Babylonian times and just look at like chants um, that were, this is in Winston Black's um, uh, uh, medicine uh, source book, um, which I, I took, um, I borrowed a few sources uh, from that. Um, his, the, if, if you have not had Winston Black on your, um, on your channel, you definitely should. He's, he's amazing. I also assigned one of his podcasts um, to my, in my class where he was, um, comparing COVID with, with the Black Death. Um, but because primarily his source book dealt with medicine, um, and I wasn't really dealing with medicine in the class. It was more like disease and pandemics and like how society kind of dealt with it in their own way. I only took a few sources from, but he has a really like a lot of ancient stuff in that. So I took a few, a, a few from there and, and, and stuff that I could just find, um, in, in open, in open source, um, places. Um, and I think, I think because we are dealing, um, even today we're dealing with diseases that are ancient, um, that have, um, that are very hard, um, to actually put, um, the origin point to them. Um, and because diseases don't really have temporal boundaries, that's why, um, that's why I kind of went all over the place. Like we, we would cover thousands of, uh, of years. Um, but to prepare something like the black death, you don't start with the black death. You start with other, um, types of diseases that kind of start to pop up in the historical record. And these are mostly, um, you can, you can find them in, in kind of, uh, uh, uh sources about, uh, medicine in, in Greek sources about medicine, but you could also find them in like chronicles, even like, um, uh, histories from, from antiquity that, um, describe um, death and disease coming to a community. And I think one of the popular things that um, historians of, of, of medicine uh, were, uh, what they used to do was that they try, would try to read these um, pre-modern sources and try to like figure out, okay, what disease were they really talking about? Like they're describing all of these symptoms. Does this actually, is this typhus? You know, it's, and I, and I think what a, a cool thing that has happened in the way that historians of, of medicine disease talk about it is that they don't try to find necessarily, like it could be typhus, but that's besides the point. It's really just like how this, um, how, how this, a pre-modern writer is thinking about it, how they're kind of framing it in this, um, um, in the way that it affected um, their society and what kind of moralizing discourses come from it. And I think that's a, that's the more interesting uh, part of it. Not like, Oh, th this, they, he says a B and C symptoms. So it must be this. Um, I think, I think um, his um, historians of, of medicine disease are a lot more sophisticated than that. Uh, but of course the students want to know that too. So you, so, sure. so sometimes you just have to like riff with them, with them on that. Um, so for so something like the Black Death, you know, um, you can't start with the second pandemic. You have to go to the first pandemic, um, and then you've just got to you have, and then even before you get go to the first pandemic, which broke out, um, uh, you know, basically during the time of of, of Justinian the Emperor, um, and sometimes it's called the Justinian Plague because of that. You can't even start with the first pandemic. You have to like discuss with students, okay, where do diseases and pandemics come from, and that's um, and there you're going into prehistory. So to even get up to the Black Death, um, you have to, I, I spent a couple weeks on the first pandemic and then a, a couple weeks before that, just on, um, on ancient disease. And, um, yeah, the, the Cambridge, um, the, the, the biggest, um, Cambridge history of medicine is, is, is a really, really good resource for all of that. Um, because, um, again, I'm not necessarily a historian of medicine or, or disease. And I also uh, don't have a great science background. Um, I do have a PhD in history, but I do not have a 10th grade uh, education in science. I, I'm a high school dropout. So very basic things about biology, I, do, I never had the education about. So I, it's very important to me that I read things um, that are written for lay people like me, that where I can, I have very minimal understanding of science, but I can understand it and then teach it with my student, teach it to my students.
So let's talk a little bit more about the uh, the class and the way that students reacted. Here we have um, students. I'm guessing mostly non-majors, although I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you said special topics class, so any student yeah. can find this topic. And and in the middle of a pandemic, I can imagine why they're interested. You wrote about this in your essay for Europe Now in this cluster of essays, and you talked about what it was like to be in that classroom. And I, I'm just going to actually share one little bit of what you wrote. Mm -hmm. You talked about um, an assessment you gave, a test, um, and a writing prompt. And in the prompt, you said, and the, the language of this is going to sound familiar to anybody who's taken a history class, identify three types of primary sources that historians <laughs> use to mm -hmm. analyze the Black Death of bubonic plague and explain their particular worth in illuminating the human and social experiences of the plague. And then you gave a bonus, an extra credit. What parallels do you see between how medieval and modern governments handle mm -hmm. epidemics? Uh, so. What were the answers? So let me let me give a little bit more background. Um, so the class that I was just describing, um, like the the disease and pandemics in the pre modern world, I guess if you could you could give it that title, it's just special topics. Um, that class was taught in fall 2020. That had an enormous amount of prep work that was done by me. I, I did a whole source book, um, and that was taught synchronously, kind of like this. Um, that prompt that you just read out was a prompt that I came up with in for the la in like almost the last minute when we had broke in spring 2020 for pandemic. So what what I had to do is I had to put the entire class online. And uh, our um our LMS, our um learning management um service is Blackboard, which is very clunky and horrible, but <laughs> that's what I have. And my concerns when the pandemic hit in March was, um, and at the time I was teaching a world history course, world history part one, which covers um, the origins of humanity to roughly the year 1500. Uh, my concerns with that course um, is that I didn't know what my students were going through. So what I, had, what I did with that course and what I did with my US history course, the survey, was that when I put it online, um, we did not have synchronous sessions like this like I'm like we had like six weeks or seven weeks left of class uh, of class left. So um, I gave them like prompts to like uh, like that they had to write on like just like paper prompts and then they submitted a paper once a week. So it was very chill. Like they watched some videos, they read some things on their own time within the week, and then they turned something in on Monday. That was what that's the strategy that I came up with in like the emergency time of like COVID teaching when I didn't have anything prepared. And that prompt you read was me like already getting the idea of that, okay, I'm going to have to bring in uh, the Black Death. I actually wasn't really going to talk about the Black Death in world history. There's so many other topics you need to cover. I think I was going to do half a class on it. Um, but there has to be interest from the students, right? Like, like I mean, medieval, medieval Black Death hot takes were coming in quick. <laughs> you know, in those early days of COVID. And so, and and as you, if you read the other um, essays in the cluster, like uh, Maria Americo's essay from, um, she's an assistant professor at St. Peter's. Uh, she had written that she was teaching this class and like a Western Civ class, I don't know what it was, uh, for, forgetting. And um, she wasn't going to do the Black Death. And suddenly all the students wanted to know about the Black Death. So um, I anticipated that that was going to be their response. So I'm like, how do I do this in like, an easy way in which they kind of like get it right away. So I looked at the types of documentaries that were available um, for our for our students that we have access to through our streaming service. Um, and there's a documentary called The Return of the Black Death, which was produced in 2014 by the BBC. It's very England centric. Um, I, I would have preferred something global, but that's not the option I had. And I watched the documentary. I'm like, okay, this could be really interesting. And this was obviously uh, produced during the Ebola, um, but like so, it, it it brought it it brought it kind of to like our modern era, and um, it shows like how diseases uh, spread with like a focus on the Black Death. And one of the things that I generally do in my classes, um, whether it's a class on the Black Death or not, is that when I assign a documentary, um, I always ask questions where the students think about how the documentary is put together. That if we are taking this as a secondary source we have to analyze how uh, the documentary filmmakers are deploying those primary sources for um, a mass audience. And I would argue that assigning documentaries 
or, or maybe other narrative films is incredibly important uh, pedagogical tool because your students, I'm sorry to say, are not going to remember the primary sources they read. But you know what they will remember? They will remember that weird movie that they saw in your class three years ago or five years ago. So there's this. That, so um, this was, you know, available in our educational service, the Return of the Black BBC produced documentary. So it was very slick or what have you. And I noticed that, um, as I noticed with all documentaries, like how they put information together. So um, the students, because we had been talking about primary sources um, for the entire semester until we broke for, for the COVID, um, is, uh, you know, they did very well. You know, they noticed that, okay, um, the documentarians, they used wills. I mean, it's mostly, uh, you know, medieval English wills because it was centered on medieval England. Um, they use bio bioarchaeological data. They look at, uh, you know, skeletons from plague pits or burial pits. Um, they um, There's a letter that they read from a king, you know, about, you know, the death of his daughter who died of plague. So that like letters, um, chronicles. You know, things like that. So that's those are the types of, of things that I wanted them to notice. But I also wanted them to notice how um, how these pieces of evidence that we historians write about, how they can be put on film and arranged in such a way that is appealing to a mass audience. That's that's what I wanted them to, to get out of that. So, well, thank you for that explanation. And um, <laughs> and that that point you made there about the narrative um, being what will stick in lots of cases, but also that's an opportunity for historians to sort of pull back on that and show students how these narratives are constructed. And that even with like, a, I've done that teaching the history of the Civil War, the US Civil War, and just take a five minute segment, uh, let students watch a Ken Burns, so I intentionally use Ken Burns. Yeah. Um, and then say, okay, now watch it and write down every primary source you see in that five minutes. Well, it's mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. And then and then you turn them loose and then you've ruined watching films for them because I mean, you know, the way historians, it's hard to watch films with us because then after that, they're always going to be looking for how the construction works and what the, yeah. and what the source material is. And just coming back to the essay that you, that you wrote, and I put the link up here to it. People should be able to find this discussing mm -hmm. um, the title medieval echoes in modern experiences of the COVID-19 pandemic. But one particular answer really kind of, um, drew you up short from one of your from mm -hmm. one of your students and and I'll just uh, again just read one sentence here. Uh, one student answered, "The only countries that are prepared and doing things right are the countries run by women. Our government should have been more proactive and planned for such a debacle to happen." So that's this is in the middle of the pandemic. It's there right. on the page, coming from a student. What was your reaction to that? It was certainly the most colorful reaction because most of the students. Um, uh, so let me. Well, this is spring when when everything was disrupted very uh, in 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 this very dramatic way. Uh, all the students were fairly um, ho hum in their responses. They just kind of answered it straight up. Um, this student was. Um, this is so very much our demographic, right? Um, she was older. Uh, she had. She actually had children were older children. Um, and this was her, um, I, I remember asking her when we were still meeting face to face before the pandemic hit, I remember asking her, um, does it like, is it very inconvenient for you to come to campus? And she's like, no, I live for it. Like I'm, I'm with my kids all day. Like I, I love history. She was a history major. I, I love it. I want to, I want to, this is my respite from, from home. And so I'm, I'm putting my, I get this answer from her, which she had submitted on Blackboard for the weekly paper thing that I was doing. And I, and I get where she was coming. She was frustrated. She was like, I was having such a good time. Um, not necessarily just in my class, but just in general, going to campus, finishing her education. And this thing had completely screwed her up. She lost her job. Um, and I, I think she was working uh, at the time at a, at a restaurant and she had lost her job. So she didn't have that. Um, and she, she was, she was, she was, I think she, she got to that prompt and she was frustrated and she kind of let it all out on, on the page. Uh, not directly, not directed at me, but like just directed at the situation. Um, one of the things I also asked, like, you know, do you, how do you compare, like the, the documentary had, had showed like, 
you know, how how Londoners tried to prepare for the onslaught of, of the plague and and actual kind of proactive things that the government was uh, at the time was was trying to do to deal with the Black Death in their own way. And so I, I asked them to compare that to maybe what they're seeing around her. And that's when she wrote the whole thing about the women, because at the time in March of 2020, it seemed like um, uh, the, the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, and Angela Merkel were the only ones who knew what they were doing. They really like we had uh, we we had a, a, a president who was in denial, and I wanted them I wanted them to to think about that because being in denial about a pandemic um, has never ended well, and it's also not normal. Like this is like our our reaction like. Donald Trump going in and like one day, like saying things like one day it'll go away. Like I wanted them to know that this kind of carelessness is, is not leadership. And, and people have um, been, you know, uh, leaders in the past and they are, and they, and they are leaders today, but that was not leader. And I wanted them to, to see what dire straits we were in because, um, some uh, because pandemic uh yes we have we have to work as a community but it's also about leadership and who is who's kind of uh handling the response to that and we were in in we were in deep deep shit <laughs> sorry can i cuss i don't know yeah. <laughs> we, we were in like if we were already in deep shit like by march 2020 with the the uh the trump presidency or the trump administration but we we really realized what in massive deep shit we were with uh, having that guy at the at the head of the response um and i think the students realized that and i and she she especially realized and i think that's where it came out is that is that a way that that history then you know because we always hear about how history I think we hear too much about how going back to those historical cases will will provide us the lessons we need to get out of a current problem. And I always I'm I'm worried about that as if, you know, historians just always have a sort of ready-made playbook from the past to offer to current policymakers. And hey, yeah, just follow one, two, and three. But you know, pulling on cases from the past, resonances and contexts that mm -hmm. that that do resemble current problems, like you said, if you're framing it as a problem of leadership or a problem mm -hmm. of knowledge or a problem of a gendered society, those are powerful examples for students to find. Mm -hmm. And I, my experience is they find sometimes a pessimism there that, wow, we just keep, why, why do we just keep repeating mm -hmm. these same kinds of patterns? But in other cases, I find students um, pull much more complicated things out of the historical record. They they pull one that struck me as I was teaching in the pandemic was the way that people coped with loss in the past, that the historical record was actually a reservoir of, of mm -hmm. empathy for them. Yeah. Um, and so they weren't looking for like, well, how do we get rid of a bad leader? They were looking for like, how do people deal with, with loss in the past? And that that was a useful thing for them as well. I don't know how your students, you know, reacted to those examples. Yeah, this one strong example, which is quite useful. What else? Oh, exactly what you mentioned. Um, in the in the fall class, uh, in the actual pen, not the not the spring class, which was disrupted, and I had this uh, video that I watched uh, that I had them watch. But the in the actual structured pandemic class, um, the sources from my from my source book that I gave them, um, the ones that resonated the most were ones that dealt with emotion that dealt that allowed them to to empathize. Um, and, uh, and listen, sometimes, you know, especially pre modern sources they're they can be weird. Um, they're very uh, removed from our uh, experiences and that and that's okay. And that's, and that's what I am. I'm not a historian of, of, of medicine or disease, but that's one thing that I'm very good at. I can, I'm a pre-modernist. I, I know how to read these sources, whatever topics they are. And I can, I can shepherd um, the students through a better understanding of context, which is incredibly, incredibly important to counteract this narrative of like history repeating itself or, <laughs> uh, which is, which is something that is, um, that all too many students uh, believe, at least until they take my class, um, or this idea, or this idea that um, we're gonna we're gonna take these lessons from the past and apply them to the future. You know, I I think 
students uh, once they take a more advanced college history class that's not in a not in a Texas high school classroom <laughs> taught by a coach no offense to coaches um, they realize that there's a more of a sophisticated way of understanding these things so I can that's my job I can I can I can lead them lead them through the the foreign context of, of what is the pre-modern world sometimes but when it comes to actual sources that show suffering that show how people are dealing with loss, how they grieve. That is, that was really powerful stuff. And there was, um, there was an assignment that I had in the pandemics course in fall, in the fall, where I had students um, present on a primary source, uh, which is found in Rosemary Horrocks's um, book on sources on the Black Death. Uh, which is very Europe centric. Um, that's what again. Th that's that's why I I couldn't assign her book um, is because we were going beyond the Black Death and we were also going beyond Europe. Uh, but I um I I I did assign her book and I gave each student a source, um and I and I assigned them a source that I thought might interest them. Like I got to know them. And there was one student who wanted to be pre med, so I I gave her a, a pre modern source on um what uh what the uh what the medical authorities at the time in the 14th century thought about the plague so i thought that might be more up up her alley um but there are sources of like people who are really um who write about personal loss um either in a letter or in some other in, in some other format and those are the ones that really resonated with students so they when they presented to the class what they had found in this source um they kind of connected it to their own life and that's something that uh, you know they don't need me at all for that's something that they they kind of work through um as far as um as 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 far as kind of fine-tuning um their empathy for people who lived you know hundreds and hundreds of years ago that there is a continuity with when it when it comes to human experience just a reminder that you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking today about teaching history in the time of COVID with esther lieberman cuenca and i want to um, just come back to your students, and you described at the top of our discussion today really well the demographic that you're serving mm -hmm. here. Um, and then the example of the student um, took the bonus question and really and really went with it, who yeah. also shared with you her life experience. Mm -hmm. um, so can you zoom out a little bit on how students at University of Houston, Victoria, have coped with the pandemic, that accessibility issues, um, uh, digital divide issues. Undoubtedly, as you said, the one student lost her job. And so now we're dealing with childcare. And I mean, every different aspect of this pandemic has hit working class people harder and people of color harder because of the divisions and the fault lines that already exist in society that the pandemic reveals. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm curious, it, it's, you know, you're not a social worker, in the classroom, and yet one has to be pretty yeah. hardened not to empathize with and and hear, at least hear the experiences of their students in a time like this. What did you learn? Or what I guess continuing to learn because the students are still facing these hardships in many cases, I'm sure. Um, so you're right about the K-shape recovery as 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 we're calling it. Um, someone like me is is gonna be fine. I'm securely employed. Um, I was one of uh, I was very very privileged enough to be one of the people to buy a house uh, during COVID, and that and that partly, I didn't think it was going to be a big thing buying houses, <laughs> like it's 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 completely exploded. Um, uh, I I bought um, a house here in Victoria, Texas, right uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. I don't think I'd be able to buy a house now because the prices have gone up, but I did it right at the beginning of the pandemic, and the only reason I did so was because oh. There goes the the job market once and for all. Um, I'm lucky to have this job, and I am never leaving Victoria. And if I'm gonna, and my prediction was that this pandemic was gonna last for a long time. Donald Trump wasn't doing the Trump administration wasn't doing anything. Um, this is gonna ravage our communities, and I need um, I need a more permanent place to stay. So I was incredibly privileged to like get a house and get more settled in in Victoria and and be in a job where I can do distance teaching and not put my body in danger. That is not the case uh, for my students. Uh, for some of my students, their lives carried on much as the same before, but only with the added danger of catching uh, a potentially deadly disease because they work at Walmart or they work at HEB or they work at Bucky's or 
some other place where they um where they're considered as um essential workers so they they needed to keep working you know to to survive and then there were students like um uh, like a, like the young woman who had written that response, um, who I think was a waitress somewhere or she did some other thing and she lost her job. So it's been an incredibly mixed bag, but I think what you are saying is completely correct in that it is exacerbating class differences. Whatever, whatever privileges I had before the pandemic have now only, um, amplified, um, after, after the pandemic. And, for I mean, for students like for some students like this kind of uh, modality of of teaching. I mean, U University of Houston Victoria is like a lot of other regional universities that there was already a robust online program because that's how they're going to uh, reach working adults. This was even before the pandemic, so that's always been part of um, the strengths of our university, and that worked and that worked really really well for us um, as we went into 2020, 2021. We actually did not have an enrollment dip in that year. If anything, our enrollments went up. This year is a little bit different. Uh, our enrollments are down and it's it's um, it's <laughs> a 13% down, which is an apocalyptic event to um, our administrators. Um, but it, you know, when, when I'm a, I'm a face-to-face -face teacher. So when I uh, moved online entirely in fall of 2020, and I was doing synchronous classes like this live, um, it was fantastic for students who were calling in from Houston, from Katy, uh, from two hours away, uh, who had jobs there, who could not come to the Victoria campus uh, to take my world history course or to take whatever. Um, it was great for them. For other students um, who are in the Victoria er area um, and who like going to face-to-face -face classes because they like cannot physically learn in the online environment. It's just been disastrous for them. Like they've been, they can't focus. Um, they, uh, the demands of their work might be too, might be too large. The, their whole home situation is chaotic where they can't actually, uh, uh, learn in a safe space or in a calm space. So to characterize one experience for a student, is um, not the right way to go because everyone has their own kind of situations. But what tends to be universal is that the students here are predominantly working class. They all have challenges. Some of these online things have made learning very accessible to them and some of them have not. Uh, but, they, but they still have all these challenges all the same. And I think if anything, uh, COVID has made it a lot easier to just talk about personal stuff. So I am a much more attuned to the kinds of challenges that are, that my students have in this area. I don't think I, I would have been as, as conscious of their challenges had it not been for COVID because it has, it has really opened up the, the conversation just about our personal lives and like what's going on. What a time to get to know a community. As you mm -hmm. said, you were there basically six months before. Yeah. Yeah. The pandemic started and everything changed. So you didn't mm -hmm. know the institution, didn't know the community, and you get to know it in this way. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, it, it's been this in this limited way. Uh, what I do know, I really love my colleagues. I really like the students. Uh, but even that first semester when things were like normal, when like before the, the semester before the pandemic, um, it's very hard to do your first semester as an assistant professor anywhere. Um, and I, um, uh, I'm a medieval historian teaching a lot of U.S. history because that's the demand that, that the Texas curriculum has. Um, that's the bread and butter of the Texas curriculum. It's a reason why I have a job, but it's, um, it's, it's part of the thing that I need to do. So I was just trying to like figure out how to teach U.S. history that first semester. I wasn't really getting to know anyone. I was, I was writing new lectures. I was doing all these kind of things. And then, when we entered that, when we entered spring 2020, I, I, and I was teaching two sections of U.S. history again. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm getting it. I know what to do. I, I know how to relate to the student body. And then, bam, the pandemic hit, and it's just not been the same. So um, we're almost up on time, but I guess I'd like to ask you, you know, looking forward a little bit, um, will you be teaching the pandemics class again? And and if so, how will you change it or, or what will be different? What was what did the teacher learn in terms of going forward? Um, so I've, I, I just had a history. Uh, we don't have departments here. We have programs. Uh, I just had a history program meeting the other day and I actually requested that I teach the pandemics cl 
class again uh, this coming spring. I can't, I can't do it because it's it hasn't been two years since the last time I taught it. I taught it fall 2020, and I was requesting spring 2021, and my my coordinator said no. So I'll, I'll be I'll be teaching the Crusades, also a class that um, I'm not a Crusades historian, but it's also I think it's one of those uh, Crusades is one of those topics that like it's like the greatest hits. It's like if you're Led Zeppelin, that's your Led Zeppelin four. You need to have uh, need to have a, a, a Crusades crusade. class. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You need you need to have that Crusades class um, because that that's going to attract a lot of interest. But I had wanted to do I, the reason why I asked to do the pandemics class again, and I and I put a formal request that it be entered into the catalog as a real class. I think I, I'm entering it as um, disease and pandemics in history. So it's not like a Europe or an Africa. It's just like right. all history. Um, because the when I taught it in fall of 2020, I think I had at most a cla- one class on vaccines. So my my plan was that I need to do this class again because I worked very hard <laughs> to prep this class the first time and I want to derive the benefits from that. But also I need to completely redo how I teach vaccines. And I think when I was doing it originally fall 2020, I was very you could even ask my students how pessimistic I was. I'm like, we're never going to get a vaccine. We're never going to get one. Like there hasn't been a vaccine for a coronavirus. Like what makes you think like I was, I was this negative net, like everything was negative whenever, whenever, some, whenever someone had a conversation with me. Um, and so I didn't cover like vaccines that much um, in the class. And also like, my focus was talking about like how society deals with with the with the effects of plagues and pandemics. Uh, so vaccines only took up like a class or so. But oh my god, was I going to change that for the spring? We were right. going to take maybe a week on vaccines. We're gonna we were going to talk about. Um, um, I did and I did talk about this a little bit in the fall class. Um, resistance to vaccine. I, I wanted to cover all of that. I wanted to have readings on vaccines. So I had. Um, um, I had I have big plans uh, when I teach this class in the in the future, uh, probably uh, not this school year, but the but the next school year, I'll, I'll teach it again. And, you know, I'll have a different perspective because, again, that's how that my my classes change with me. Like I process information, what's going on in the world. And then um, I propose a class or that my existing class changes in, in some way. Um, much to sometimes the frustration of my colleagues who just want me to stick with one rotation <laughs> and not, you know, read a random article on South Asian queer women immigrants and decide that, oh, I'm interested in that. And I'll just teach a class on that. Um, that's kind of how I tend to, do, I, I tend to just take the real world and turn it into a class. So, uh, but the pandemic is still very, very much with us. Um, even though I can't teach the class again in the spring, I could probably teach it um, next fall. I'll do that. And it will reflect topics that are current that are that deal with the pre-modern world but that are you know reflective of our own time and so yeah all of my classes change i mean that's how that's how i process information well the texas legislature is trying to ban as far as i can tell any teaching of african-american history or the history of race in uh, texas uh public schools but i think they're going to have a hard time banning and which is not going to work um, but they're going to have a hard time banning the history of pandemic, although maybe they will try and, and it will be fascinating to see, I mean, just to underline for people, um, that you're teaching in a public institution. And so there's also that, that scrutiny, that political pressure and scrutiny. So what you decide to teach, um, mm-hmm. is not separable. You said, you know, drawing from what's in the news today, which I totally admire. And, and I think students appreciate that a lot. Um, but there's other things in the news too, in terms of where you are and how politicians think they should be in charge of what you get to do in the classroom. I don't know if that kind of politics makes it on the syllabus or not, but it, it's the broader atmosphere in which you're working. Well, I mean, right now that conversation it, it affects my my uh, my my colleague Laura Mamina here, uh, who's a, a Civil War historian, who's a historian of African American history, um, and my and my colleague Joe Locke, who's a Texan, who's a Texas historian. Um, it, it obviously has probably more effect on them, but I do teach U.S. history. Um, I did ask, uh, I, m- I remember at the beginning of semester, I know that this is like, f- these laws are meant to target um, K through 12. Is this going to really, but we're at a public institution, so I didn't know. It seems like we are safe from that for now on. But the way that I see it is, you know, I read that really good article by uh, Timothy Snyder in the New York Times about memory laws. And I feel like this is another, it's, like another type of memory law in which you are restrict when you when you attempt to restrict what 
uh, trained teachers and trained historians try to teach about the past, that is a type of memory law, not in the way that maybe we would necessarily traditionally think in the way that Timothy Snyder was describing memory laws um, having to do with like the Holocaust and things like that. But it is it is you're trying to shape the way that people remember the past um, by restricting what, you know, our, 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 our speech and, and the way that, um, and our, and our expertise. Um, so I, I think that there's this kind of whole conservative um, preoccupation and movement towards like shaping history because they know that history is, is a battleground. Uh, they know that that is where it's, it's a side of identity formation. Um, obviously literature classes, all other classes uh, do that as well. Sociology classes, but history, especially like when you find out how is it that how human, how humanity has dealt with inequalities, how they have perpetuated inequalities. When you, when you see that um, and the, con and the continuity of that uh, um, over time, that's, that's a potentially radicalizing force and conservative uh, ideologues are not stupid in that sense. They know that. Um, and so the best way to do that is to control it, to, to, you know, to strike it from the classroom and from the, and from the, from the history books. Um, and I'm not sure that they're going to have a lot of uh, success at, at UHV. Uh, but boy, are they going to try. They're having success in a lot of other things. Just a reminder that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Special announcement that on Tuesdays in the month of September, we're going to have a special guest host, uh, Kristen Urquiza, who's the founder of Marked by COVID. And Kristen has been a guest multiple times uh, on COVID calls. So please do join us for that tomorrow on Tuesday at COVID calls. We'll have Kristen Urquiza um, hosting. And I just want to thank my guest, Esther Lieberman Cuenca, for really this, for sort of opening up your memory of what it was like teaching in this time, but also how one goes about constructing course in the middle of a disaster. Uh, learned a lot from the conversation. Thanks, Esther. Thanks for having me. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.